Welcome to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations, a podcast series that looks at trends impacting mid-sized companies and the influencers behind their success. I'm Deborah Cohen, Editor-in-Chief of Middle Market Growth Magazine. I'm here with Katie Mulligan, the magazine's Associate Editor. Katie, who'd you talk to for the podcast this week? Hey, Deb. I sat down with Melissa Gonzalez, the founder of Lioness Group, which produces what are known as pop-up stores, so essentially temporary storefront locations. Melissa was in town from New York to work on a project that she has here in Chicago called IRL, which is short for In Real Life, where online retailers display their products in one of the city's downtown malls to give shoppers a chance to experience things like beds and water rowers um, that they had on site rather than just buying them blindly online. She's also worked with well-known brands like Marc Jacobs and even common products like peanut butter to produce uh, these pop-up stores. So she had really great insight into some of the disruption that's happening in retail right now and this growing trend of, of experiential shopping. Yeah, it's a really important trend, um, particularly as uh, online sales and retail continue to outpace brick and mortar sales and show really no signs of stopping. It's clear that consumers still want to touch and feel the products before they buy. It's also timely because the January-February issue of Middle Market Growth Magazine is themed around the retail sector. And that is the first in what is now a six-issue-per-year lineup of the magazine. So we are very excited to to have that issue uh, come out and land on our members' uh, desks in early January. So uh, without further delay, let's get into the interview with Katie speaking with Melissa Gonzalez. I'm here with Melissa Gonzalez, founder of Lionesque Group. Melissa, thanks for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Sure. The website for your firm, Lioness Group, describes your team as retail strategists and pop-up architects. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that entails and the type of work that Lionesque does? Absolutely. So we are pop-up architects and that, you know, our specialty is architecting the experience and execution of a pop-up store. But we don't just approach it as a marketing event. We really are coming at it from a retail strategy point of view, hence the tagline, retail strategists and pop-up architects. A lot of our clients are really looking to learn and understand how a physical space impacts their sales. In, as a whole and so when we're working with them it's not just architecting what's the story of the space but really from a retail strategy point of view what's the right customer flow and you know how do we plan for inventory and and staffing and all the aspects of that make the pop-up actually successful and also gives them kind of a launch pad to see okay if I did a long-term lease what can I learn from this shorter term environment great and as we speak, there's a pop-up store in Chicago's Water Tower Place that you put together called IRL, mm-hmm. short for In Real Life. Experiencing that kind of sparks an aha moment. You know, finally someone has found a way to tackle the fear factor of buying online products that customers don't usually get a chance to touch or interact with. Can you explain this concept a little bit more? Sure. So uh, in real life, um, the way we kind of filter the curation is digital native brands. Um, Most of the brands that are in the space have no to very limited brick and mortar presence at this stage, but they really think it's a viable path for them. So they really want to learn about what that environment um, can do for their entire sales channel. We do have a few that are local to Chicago, and then we have many that are not. Um, They come from all, all across the country, but they're also products that really do need to account for that touch feel gap. 
So we have a water rower, for example. You're going to see it aesthetically on a website and, and maybe understand the wood finishes, but you're not going to understand what makes this water rower different than a, another rowing machine without actually getting on it. So same thing with killer spin and table tennis. Whereas the, the genesis of them launching the company was unplug and play. You can really understand the benefits of that if you actually play with a friend or with your, your daughter or your son and take that time out. And so that those things kind of can't be delivered online. And when we work with brands in general to launch pop-up stores, I, that's one of the first questions I ask them when we are in ideation is, well, what are we going to deliver in this physical space that you can't online? And it's really about creating that relationship and A lot of the times brands try to wrap their head around, well, how do I account for ROI? How do I account for sales per square foot? And in our space, we're really pushing the mentality of, well, it's experience per square foot. And it's experience that drives mind share. It's, you know, kind of what's going to get you to create an emotional connection with your consumer. It's what's going to get them to remember. It's what's going to get them to talk about you. And they could be in any, any stage of their path to purchase. But if you make even a micro conversion of getting their email address or getting them to click on your website when they wouldn't have known what it was otherwise or posting a picture on socials with your image and being a brand ambassador for you and all of that stuff helps with continuing that or starting or continuing the relationship. So that's the environment that we are uh, fostering at IRL and the, the tagline that's kind of come out organically from it from one of our brands from the first couple of weeks is eat, play, shop at IRL because that's what people are doing when they come inside and they're spending time and the average dwell time is like 20 minutes because they're laying on the bed and going through a VR sequence or they're playing table tennis or they're eating a lobster roll. And the companies that are featured, are they often smaller startups? Are they more established brands? Is it kind of a mix? It's a mix, but on average, they're proven concept at scale. So really brands that, you know, this, this serves somewhat as a feasibility study for them. Um, they've raised Series B, Series C rounds, and they know they want to expand into certain cities, but they want to test first. And so we, we also came at it with the mindset of this helps systematize that a bit. A lot of the times brands will come to GDP and, and do a short-term uh, pop-up, and then what? Nobody on either side really, really knows what happened in that time period in that space. So we're trying to make it a little bit more easy, you know, turnkey for them in that they're bringing us the product. We have staffers. They they can run the day-to-day, but we're also collecting information and we're going back to the brands and teaching them more. So when they go back to the, you know, looking at, okay, we just raised $20 million and we want to go into these cities, now they have some data behind it to say, okay, these are the cities that make sense for us or where we think we're going to have success. And in terms of the brands that you feature, um, how does a product get into your lineup? Is there an application process? Um, do you recruit them? And how often are you rotating products in and out in a, in a shop like IRL? Mm-hmm. So for the first chapter that we launched, it was a lot of our own curating and kind of outbound because it hadn't there was no proof of concept of it yet outside of our work. And, and I really wanted to stay true to curating a great set of brands that could sit next to each other and complement each other and not compete with each other and co- collaborate together. So that's how it started. Now you can go to the site and apply to be part of the next chapter um, or do an event at the existing chapter. So we have membership brands that are there for the full chapter, which will run five months. So the store launched mid-August and they'll live there through mid-January and then the next chapter will launch like February 1. 
and then um, so that chapter people can apply to but for the existing store there's there's one or two spots for members if they want to come in full-time but then we're also scheduling pop-in shops and again using that curation right now it's all home some of the pop-in brands might be apparel but they're all talking to a similar audience and they can all complement the same price point and one of the reasons we did that is because we really wanted all the brands to embrace it and feel comfortable blasting out to their list and brand alignment you know when when a brand gets to a certain stage although all brands should think this way but when brands get more and more established they're a lot more sensitive to who they sit next to and who they're adjacent to so we wanted to make sure that that was never like a hurdle for getting the right brands in they all felt like okay i'm sitting next to brands that compliment me and and help tell my story but don't compete with me for wallet share so when they co-host events and they're blasting out to the list Somebody's not choosing a water roller over a mattress from Lisa, but they could own both. So that's the mindset that we use in curating. And when you say next chapter, would that be in Chicago as Mm -hmm. well, or is that in a different city? So the next chapter in Chicago, but it is potential we'll do additional cities as well. Um, It's in in the works. And how does the business model work for pop-ups like IRL? Do you get a a share of of the of the sales or how does that work so we've structured it as a membership fee um, an all-inclusive membership fee and that covers um, their their space in the store um, this fully run by staffers um, data analytics on a weekly basis all the sales are directed straight to their site and it's a dropship model so um, they get to continue the relationship uh, once the sale is made and they get to see who the customer is and collect all their contact information and they keep the sales. They deal with shipping, they deal with returns, they deal with all that. Um, we are kind of leading the story and then they're taking the relationship once the sale has happened. And what's the target demographic for a store like IRL? You know, on the one hand, it feels traditional because you're bringing people into a physical space. On the other hand, a lot of these are online retailers, which sounds like more of a millennial play. So who is kind of the target here? It's an interesting question because one of the kind of um, recurring comments I got at the opening night was, you would think this is for millennials, but it's actually geared a little older, but in a very kind of hip way. So I would say upper millennials Um, so maybe like young 30s to 50 kind of range a lot of it's because the products are a little bit more sophisticated and higher in price point Um, so you know somebody right out of college might not be buying a water rower but you know somebody with a young family in their young 30s and you know they need to be efficient about time or something like that it could make more sense for them so it's there the products are a little bit aspirational even though they're attainable um, but then within Lisa, you know, we have entry price points of a mattress like $800, but then it goes higher. So, so it kind of ranges. Um, and then we have Gur spatulas that are, you know, $15. So, um, so I think it's a range, but it kind of, it kind of seems to be gearing a little bit older, which is exciting because they have discretionary income. Um, but also they've been really open to the technology aspect of it which is a great because I think a lot of people think that it's only for millennials and I don't think that's the case. And, you know, obviously e-commerce is huge right now and, and growing rapidly, but for big ticket items like furniture and, and mattresses, like you just mentioned, there's still 
a fear of the unknown for many consumers. I just bought a couch, so this is very near and dear to my heart and has been on my mind. But, you know, do you think we're going to see more showroom type concepts like this, um, either featuring multiple brands like at IRL or, or single brand? I do. I do. Because I don't think brick and mortar is dead. I think it's evolving. I think that it's a rethink of how do we use physical space? Where does it fit in the customer's journey? Um, physical space can serve many purposes depending on the brand and the city and, and a lot of aspects to it. So you are seeing a lot of digital first brands as they're proving concept and growing and raising money. A good portion of that raise is to go into brick and mortar and physical and and a lot of them are doing it in shoppable showroom environments and that's across industries it's in it's in apparel and it's in home and so I think you will continue to see it we started with home because I I did want to start with a segment that I thought had less of a kind of like learning curve for consumers. So home made a lot of sense. You're not gonna walk out with a mattress or a sofa or, so you don't expect that versus launching with apparel. You know, I thought it'd be, have a little bit more friction. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you're working on a custom sofa from Made in Home, it's really great to sit on it and see what that feels like and touch the different materials and the fabric and what does their leather feel like versus, you know, and it sits in this interesting price point where it's not, inexpensive but it's a great um, value for custom but what does that mean right and and what does that quality feel like so I do think certain categories really need it yeah and I think it, even more so than price it's sort of lo- the longevity you know you're going to own that couch for several years if it's not mm-hmm. comfortable to sit on that's a problem versus a t-shirt that maybe you order online and okay yeah. this didn't work and get rid of it that yeah kind of thing. you have less buyer's remorse <laughs> In your opinion, are there companies that are, are doing a really good job of, of merging e-commerce with showrooms? I do. I do think that there are um, there's a lot of companies that kind of have opened our mind, I think, to what's possible and physical. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Samsung Experience Store in New York City. They don't sell one product, but when you talk about experience per square foot and gaining mind share and opening people up to understanding that Samsung does a lot more than we think. Um, from home to consumer products. Uh, I think they've done a great job in that. If you go to the Sono store, you know, it's these little houses that you could sit in and, and each one is designed to be a different room in your home and what should sound feel like in a study versus in a living room. And it takes you on this journey. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't, we even um, did a pop-up for uh, peanut butter. And that was, to me, a great example of everybody knows what peanut butter is. I mean, 98% of people know what peanut butter is. Yeah. And if you don't eat peanut butter, it's probably because you're allergic to it. Right. <laughs> so what's the purpose of a pop-up? And it was increasing kind of mind share. Like, I know I can eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but I might not know all the different cocktails I can make with it hmm. or different ways I can add into dinner recipes and other things. So now I've made it an even bigger part of my life because of this pop-up and all the education that happened around it. So I think... Um, like leisure and sports and wellness or industries that do it well and and I think food does it in a really great way because it's kind of inherently immersive with all the senses Um, but I think that there's a lot of other brand categories that are starting to get stronger at it too. Your website gives a data point that one in four pop-ups have expanded to long-term brick-and-mortar locations is exploring physical retail space a goal for a lot of your clients or are there other reasons that they would host a pop-up? I mean, it's become our sweet spot, um, which has been excited that the, they're really doing feasibility studies with these pop-ups, but it's not the only reason. We definitely have 
Uh, we still have a subset of more emerging brands who do it because of um, seasonality or, you know, they can at this stage invest in a long-term pop-up. So those will always exist. And we usually put those in our partnership spaces where they're more turnkey and you get like one marketing meeting, one merchandising meeting, you kind of take care of it yourself. So that still exists. Um, and then you also have on the larger side, like more of those mass market brands that like Marc Jacobs, when you know when we did their pop-up it's a brand that everybody knows and they have physical stores already but they wanted to do a very concentrated conversation around their daisy fragrance just to that target demo so you'll still see pop-ups for that where it's for building um, brand awareness and amplification a new product launch testing a new partnership you know you see major stores like um in the past h&m's done that when they collaborate with the celebrity designer or you know with I think they did a Missoni collection that the pop-up closed before it should have because it sold out, but it gives them insight, okay, before we distribute this through our stores nationally, like they kind of get some advanced sales data of what they think will move and can invest that way. So there's definitely um, like a variety of reasons people do pop-up shops. So we just kind of have become in this niche because we do it from a retail strategy point of view and not just a marketing activation that we've gotten a lot of clients that are also saying okay well how do we approach this and test ROI and position ourselves to collect qualitative and quantitative data so we know really what's the benefit of having a physical space and how it can benefit our brands. So we've all read that malls are struggling amid retail bankruptcies and lower customer traffic as more customers shop online. How does Lioness Group work with property owners to revitalize these physical shopping spaces? And are there leasing challenges given the short-term nature of these shops? It's interesting because you've definitely seen a shift in in the real estate side of the equation on their open-mindedness to pop-ups. I mean, Hmm. a few years ago, there were were never this many dedicated departments to specialty leasing and, you know, it's it's something that I think that they've realized that this is a shift that's happened in retail that they can't ignore. And it's it's a huge kind of customer acquisition channel for them if it's done right too. Because if you allow me to dip my toes in your location for a few months and it goes well, you have a much more stronger selling point to get me to sign a long-term lease. So they're definitely, I think, starting to approach it more and more in that aspect. I've seen, I've seen property owners get more and more open-minded than I've seen in the past where some are doing it just for commission of sales and then some do want the flat fee um, I think that the more like mom and pop owners where you know they might still have a mortgage and paying those bills really still matter that they mm-hmm. won't be as open to it because they don't get the benefit as like a huge property owner like GGP who has a huge portfolio of properties across the country can utilize a space that's already vacant to develop a new relationship with a brand. It's a very different kind of value proposition on their side. So I think a lot of them are proactively reaching out to people like us and saying how can we partner and how can we strategize and how can we activate space and you know it's not in their core competency to 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 be creatives they don't launch and create stores they're not store operators that's not what they do so combining forces with companies that do do that kind of kind of brings another kind of um offering to the table to brands now so i do see proactively a lot of them trying to partner with operators so they can say hey we have these great properties and we can make it really easy for you to be here and we have a staffing agency and we have all these other aspects that could make it as like 
frictionless as possible for you to open doors tomorrow. So that's been interesting. Um, I don't think it, it will solve all the challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's still just curation in general of, you know, really understanding why consumers go out to physical space in general and delivering an environment that satisfies that. I think that's why food halls do so well. And, you know, food halls are doing better than food courts, even though it's kind of the same thing, but like better curated. Um, But it's placemaking. You know, we live in a digital world where we're always connected online, but never to each other. And so if you can create an environment where people can hang out and can stay and be there longer, the longer somebody stays there, the more likely they are to buy something. And so it's kind of like a remolding of the whole infrastructure, not just stores in their own silos. So I think to get there takes time, Mm -hmm. but I'm definitely seeing a lot more uh, innovative and open mindsets than we've seen in the past few years. And for listeners who might not be familiar with GGP, can you speak to their involvement with with IRL or that relationship? So GGP is General Growth Properties. They're one of the top mall operators um, in in the country. Um, They have 127 properties. Water Tower Place is one of the top tier within their portfolio. They're also headquartered here in Chicago. So launching at Water Tower Place made sense for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. It, we, we, you know, we really wanted to make sure that we conveyed the message that pop-up doesn't mean because it's in a space that doesn't have good traffic. Like pop-up is just because retail and things are changing. And so we're, we're kind of listening to that and delivering on it. Um, but because my, my, my overarching goal um, and where I feel like we can provide value to GGP and to the brands are the more we can create um, kind of a back end to the store the way you see the back end of your e-commerce site where you know how many people came to your website, you know what pages they go to, mm-hmm. you know how much time they spend on each page, and you know what they add to their cart. If we can show you that same sort of thing in a physical space, now you have another powerful tool of understanding like how this space interacts with your customer and how you can follow up with that relationship. So that, that's something that, you know, we're continuing to flesh out, but um, GGP has been super supportive on kind of sharing what mall data looks like and seeing, you know, where does their traffic look like and at what times and how does ours and how can we cross leverage that and make sure that we're capturing that and um, really supportive and investing in wayfinding signage so we're not just a store in the corner, we're really a store that they're helping build awareness and educate. So that's been really exciting. So looking five years out from now, what is your prediction for, for shopping malls? Will we have them at all? Will they look different? What do you I think foresee? we'll have them, but I think they will continue to look different. Um, I think that you see a lot of kind of thought leadership in what the malls should be from the other side of the world. Like if you think of, for example, the malls at Dubai, what drives the most traffic and revenue is like, um, they're skiing and skating indoors, right? And that was their biggest investment that people probably wondered, does this even make sense? But it's not just getting people to spend time there, it's getting people to spend money there. So I think if we continue to think about how technology will make us crave placemaking more and more and delivering that, I think that's where malls will go more and more and thinking of like how do I curate I mean the biggest driver of traffic in a lot of the malls now I mean if you go even to water tower place I mean level one where all the food is is always the most crowded we're always going to eat we always want to hang out we always want to do that kind of stuff so thinking of like how do you entertain people more how do you educate people more how do you they don't need a transactional hub that much anymore because I can transact from my phone at any point so 
just kind of thinking, you know, and continuing to evolve with that. Like, what are we, what are they going to deliver that educates us, entertains us, gives us those aha moments, you know. So it's almost like the experiential kind of supplanting what was traditionally more transactional. I think so. And right now, you know, there's definitely um, certain products that impulse and having it now and needing it now still makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I even think that will be continued to solve for because you're going to see more and more brands where they partner with Uber or Lyft and they seem to deliver in. You know, they so, know you're out of orange juice and have yeah, already replaced exactly. it before you even knew you were out or something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, what other retail or, or shopping trends are, are you watching right now? Oh, um, I mean, I think the dropship model will continue. I do think you'll start seeing a lot, you know, brands really embracing local um, collaborations, um, like the way, you know, uh, West Elm Local does and, and things like that. And uh, I mean, I live in Hoboken, and I see it makes a ton of sense it's happening because a lot of the times the bigger the bigger retailers are kind of replacing the mom and pops, and I think that there's like friction when that happens because the people that live there don't want to see the like the little guys go out of business. So kind of supporting that um, ecosystem, I think, is like people value people value brands that they think you know help the community and have an aspect of social responsibility and they're transparent and all those aspects of it so I think that will continue to be important just because we're in such a transparent society now with Mm -hmm. social media you you know it's very easy for people to um, develop opinions about what they think of a brand overall that way Um, I think it's still early but 3d printing I think will continue to evolve Mm. Um, I don't think in every category it's going to evolve as quick as others because there's limitations in type of materials and things. But there's definitely some that make a ton of sense already, like the insole of your shoe because everybody's arch is different. And, mm. You know, that that kind of stuff, I think, in personalization um, will continue to evolve. And I think it's still in early stages of what VR and AR can really do because mm. um, it still disconnects you. But I do think you're going to see it it factored into design with I don't think every store is going to become virtual it's a little bit pointless <laughs> but I do think it'll complement and and be a part of the experience more and more to just really kind of take people on journeys and educate people in a deeper and deeper way and what we've seen at IRL Lisa has VR people are laying on the bed for seven minutes on average versus two before you had VR, huh, right? So the, long, the longer you can lay on a bed, the longer you're understanding how comfortable it is. And then VR is talking to you about all the layers underneath you. And then it takes you into the clouds. And, you know, you develop a different emotional connection that way. So I, I do think that's something that will continue to evolve as well. And you have produced more than 100 pop-up store experiences of those is there one that stands out to you as being especially innovative or, or memorable? Yes, um, for a couple different reasons. I, I um, So I always bring up the Mark Jacobs Tweet Shop, even though it was 2014, just because I think it was such a smart way for a brand that's normally seems untouchable to create an environment that made them feel very approachable. Hmm. And that is leaves a strong impression on people. Um, Marc Jacobs is a brand that everybody knows and the the pop-up was during Fashion Week and if you come to New York back in 2014 for Fashion Week, it was like, oh my goodness, if I can get into a Marc Jacobs show, right? So they created a pop-up at the same time and it wasn't about how popular you were. It was just about participating. And you came in and um, we collaborated with Langley Fox for art and we had a solar-powered coffee trike that debuted there. And there was definitely a number of touch points of discovery, but we also had a field of daisies and large fragrances and 
You all you have to do is come into the store, take a photo, hashtag it, show the counter that's what you did, and that's how you paid for product. Huh. So in three that's days, cool. they had 10,000 visitors. Wow. Because it, and people couldn't believe it was that easy. It like, doesn't matter how many following I have. It doesn't matter if I'm not cool. It doesn't matter if, you know, it just mattered you participated. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a really smart pop-up for them. They actually won a Clio Award, and they had, I think it was um, almost 15 million impressions on Instagram from the store. So while they didn't sell one product for dollars physically during the three-day pop-up, they saw an increase in the teens percentage-wise in the next two quarters in sales of that fragrance because of all that like brand awareness that it created. So I thought that was really smart. And then I think you know integrating technology, I think, is something that people we see pop-ups a lot B two C, but I think there's a lot of opportunities in B two B pop-ups. Hmm. Um, when Shopify went on their retail tour, I thought it was really smart on how. Um, they were basically saying to their customers, like, we're not just a tech platform. We're here to be your business partner and help you grow. And so if you had an existing site, you can book appointments to get photography done for your website and learn SEO and, you know, all the things that are going to help your business stronger. And they, they curated panel conversations. And so I think it was really important in developing, like, more stickiness of their platform to their users because they're, they're, they're giving a much stronger message. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. After you've rated the show, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and trends in middle market M&A.